This is an audio recording of a video, and you can see the video on YouTube at the Candidate Everyone channel. Folks, last week I was asking for the insanity to end. This week, I think that it is. There's a few reasons for this. We'll get into them. But basically, at this point, I think we begin to learn, look for lessons from what's happened over the last few weeks with the coronavirus. Why do I think the insanity is beginning to end? Well, influential people are beginning to move on. They're calling for a timeline for closures. Currently, the timeline idea is open-ended. How long do we need to be shut down for? Nobody knows. You can claim 18 months. You can claim six months. You can claim these incredible numbers. And these incredible numbers will result in a breakdown of society and in a breakdown of our ability to provide health and other services to our citizens. This is a no good idea. The good thing is, is that people are already beginning to see that and move past it. For example, the Prime Minister of Israel, Bibi Netanyahu, has said that he would like to see a mass isolation lasting for a period of weeks, after which we begin to open things up. There are reasons we can do that, and a lot of that has to do with innovation, which, of course, experts are very bad at guessing. So first off, there's been innovations in testing. There's a 45-minute test now from a U.S. company. I don't know what it costs, but with a short test, you can enable people who are negatives, who don't have the virus, to get back to work and back to life. This can enable the economy to reopen. Uh, it also can statistically, perhaps with statistical modeling, you can identify communities that have low risk and enable entire communities to get back to work without having to test every individual. It's important for us to have a set timeline because a set timeline enables businesses and people to plan. If you're sitting in your house and you don't know when you're going to be able to work next, then you have to begin to take extreme measures in terms of your own personal property, in terms of selling what you have, in terms of everything, in order to live for as long as you possibly can. It is open-ended. The same goes for businesses and for governments. But if you can say, you know what, this is going to last three weeks, this is going to last four weeks or two, if you have a, a limit to how long this situation will last, then you can make plans. You can borrow money. You can make uh, accommodations. Uh, you can plan to be opening yourself back up. If you're a business, you can plan to go back into business after that period of time rather than having to shut down because everything is indefinite. So there's real big benefits to being able to say, you know what, even if we need to test everybody, we can get back to work. The second thing is, is that hydrochloroquine, I can barely even say the word, is showing good results so far. No, we're not going to have massive double-blind studies that'll take months to do. We don't have months. However, a university director of a hospital in Marseille has tested 25 people, and he said that they had 75% resolution of cases within six days versus 10% resolution in six days for people who hadn't been on the drug. So the drug is showing very good results. This might be why Korea is showing such promising results. In Korea, we have seen improved case handling. Currently, in active cases, you can look at Worldometer like everybody else has. In active cases in South Korea, where they have been testing enormous numbers of people and catching many, many mild cases, only 1% of cases are serious or critical. This is a big shift in terms of the expected death rate, but also in terms of the expected hospitalization rate. We're learning how to handle this disease. And of course, more innovations are yet to come. We will innovate ourselves past this problem. Of course, the virus is still dangerous. In my last presentation, just on Friday, I predicted a doubling of death rates without any action, but even more, a quadrupling of death rates if we overreacted. I actually think this understates the case because we cannot model the effects of a shutdown in society. 
It hasn't happened since perhaps the Great Depression. And even then, we didn't have the same kind of medical innovation we have now. We didn't have the ability to treat people as we do now. And so the losses that we would face today are far greater than we would have faced in, in the last major economic collapse of the world. Third thing is, is that we are, in fact, heading towards better reality through moderate action and innovation. Yes, this is still dangerous. Yes, very bad things are yet to come. Nonetheless, those very bad things are going to be a lot better than they would have been with our overreactive uh, response to the virus. So let's go look at some, some of the history, the very brief history that we have so far. First of all, we have authoritarianism. Uh, this building behind us is the uh, Chinese Central Television, uh, the chief pro propaganda arm of the Chinese government. And it's part and representative of the origin of the virus. In an authoritarian system, no bad news flows uphill. You do everything you can to avoid having to report bad news to your superiors, because obviously whatever bad news there is, is your fault. And so you end up, this occurs not just in authoritarian systems, it occurs in companies. Companies have a very poor uh, ability to actually report what's going wrong upstream, and it can often be their undoing. But when you have no bad news flowing uphill in a state-run society like China, it enables a virus like this to take hold because people didn't want to report, they didn't want to take the action, they didn't want to let people higher up know what was going on. So they banned the press. They, they, they locked up people who reported it. Um, and uh, initially, they did that. And then once they realized how bad the virus was, the Chinese followed a pattern that apparently they follow regularly. They opened up social media for a brief period of time so that the central government could know what was going on without having to rely on local officials. And then they locked it down again. They locked it down again so strongly that they've now kicked out major Western news organizations. I think the Chinese have decided stability is more important than life. I doubt that they've actually gotten control of the virus altogether. They're claiming no new cases. Possibly that's true. I just don't know. But even if there were new cases, I believe they wouldn't be reporting them. They believe that stability in a functioning society is more important than life. I don't agree with that entirely, but I do think that stability in a functioning society can deliver life. I don't think authoritarianism is the answer, though. Despite many people looking at it and saying, oh, look at the great things China has accomplished, China was also the source of this. And so I don't think we should look at, be looking at them for an example. The second example we can look at is Koreanism. I doubt that's actually a word, but what we've seen in Korea is mass mobilization, an effective, unified response. The government reacted very quickly. They got testing out very quickly. They built up their capability extremely quickly, um, and they have absolutely led the world in terms of uh, epidemic response, uh, according to a textbook, a classic case of how to respond to an epidemic. They've done a brilliant job. Uh, they're, they're tracking all the cases. They're testing 10,000 people almost a day, uh, and they're covering many mild cases and getting a much better understanding of what this virus actually means. And in fact, Korea has left their borders open. The only restriction in Korea is if you were in Hubei province in the last 14 days, you can't enter. Otherwise, they assess you when you're at the border and they let you in because Korea recognizes that trade is critical. So the Koreans are really the best case of an existing reality. It's kind of like the, their response has been the Hyundai disease. It's reliable. It does exactly what you expect. It scales up nicely. It's, it's beautiful. I actually have a Hyundai. I like the cars very much. However, it's not deeply innovative. Um, and we'll see that that can limit the sphere and the broadness with which you can respond to this sort of situation. Third off, we have Americanism. Americanism has proven to be much less effective than Koreanism. 
We have a dysfunctional and counterproductive bureaucracy. People like to put it at the foot of President Trump, but the CDC itself reacted incompetently. Uh, their ability to roll out tests that actually worked, their, their, their decision to block tests from private enterprise, these are decisions that are stunning in their, uh, in their incompetence. We have a bureaucracy that thinks too much of itself and doesn't do things nearly as effectively as we need. In addition, we saw in the United States, social media panic. We're still seeing social media panic. People are all spelling up and dialing up this to number 11. Uh, the media is selling fear, which I think is a dangerous guide and actually can lead to authoritarianism because people look for a very, very, very strong government to try and deliver them from the plague. Uh, of course, this is not smallpox we're dealing with. We're not dealing with 30% death rates or for indigenous communities, smallpox look more like 90% death rates. We're looking at 1% death rates. And so we shouldn't be looking for the complete shutdown of society, but that's what people are seeking. And I think that that's partially due to social media panic and media selling fear. The fourth thing here is that the United States has very limited health services for the poor. People couldn't get tests. You have to have your health fund pay for it. Your treatment has to be paid for. What this means in the case of an epidemic is that you can have the epidemic spread among those people who aren't actually being treated. This is exactly what we're going to see in the third world. In India, in Egypt, in Turkey, not the third world, but the second, you're going to see an enormous number of people who have the virus who never even know it because they can't possibly track it. That's why the virus will live on. Even if we suppress it in the first world, it will continue to exist in other places and it will continue to return. We can't just get rid of it. But the United States has seen very innovative and fast business responses. Businesses have reacted very quickly, and so have local governments, so have local organizations. We've seen very rapid movement that has been very helpful and very hopeful in this sphere. We do also have expertism. Let's look at the experts and have them model it out and tell us what we should be doing. Experts are very good at predicting using existing data. Their solutions, though, tend to reduce dynamism because they like to see the inputs, they like to see the outputs, they like to model them using models they already have. I like to use Malthus, the uh, famous economist, uh, as an example. He said that population multiplies geometrically and food only multiplies arithmetically. So when the population doubles in times of plenty, you're going to have mass starvation follow shortly thereafter. His solution was, we have to cut multiplication of population. People have to get married later and have fewer children, or else we're all going to starve to death. He said this when there were 800 million people in the world. There are now over 7 billion, and those 7 billion people are significantly richer than the 800 million were in his day. Experts are very good at using existing data. They're not very good at seeing the world change. That's what people like Malthus always miss. And they miss it not only in the positive sense, they miss it in the negative sense. Experts can't predict black swan events. We saw a financial collapse in 2008 that no experts predicted. A few outliers predicted what was going to happen. They reacted, they made a lot of money. But for the most part, experts didn't see it until afterwards because experts don't see innovation and change. What they see is the world with the inputs that they can already measure. And I think we're seeing that in this case as well. They don't see the medical innovations. They don't see the testing innovations. They don't see the treatment innovations. They see what they can already model. They suggest things that lock down that reality, and they can actually end up being very dangerous as a result. I think that they can't see the collapse either because it's never happened before. So you can't judge what it is and what it's going to do. 
We also see expertism in centrally planned health systems in Europe. Those systems are scaled for the population and the issues that they have, and they're very carefully designed around those issues. You come along with a black swan event like this, and they can't cope with it. They don't have a capability. Of course, they couldn't just add more capability and say, you know what, we need a 10% reserve in order to deal with this issue, because you need a 10% reserve of a certain kind. That's the nature of black swan events. You can't predict them. So we're always going to see shortcomings whenever we rely on expertism to do policy. Of course, experts do remarkable work when it comes to, for example, innovation. People who are experts in medicine, people who are experts in science can do remarkable things. But when it comes to policy, they often are too full of themselves and their own abilities. Another area where we see expertism often causing problems is in leverage. If you have a company and it wants to borrow money, it goes to a bank and they, they generate a pro forma, a prediction of what the future is going to be. And they base the cost of the debt and the decision to take the debt on that pro forma. They predict the future as best as they can. But of course, they can't predict black swan events. They can't predict everything going wrong. And so you end up with an over leverage of society so that when catastrophe does hit, it tumbles over like a contagion and takes down an enormous amount of the functioning economic world. This is also a case of expertism leaning a little bit too far on its ability to predict the future. I'll put it a bit more simply. Experts are very good at figuring out the levers that are in a system. They're not very good at actually building the complex models that represent our world. So what's the best of all worlds? Well, I think we should increase our ability to deal with shocks, enabling a shutdown that has less destruction. We should increase our ability to react quickly, we should loosen rules and regulations to slow down responses. We saw the CDC test kits that were limiting the ability to develop new tests. We should be opening that up. And we should be increasing our ability to change reality because an innovative culture can break free of any expert's model. Let's start with economic shock. Debt leads to a collapse in unexpected circumstances. We can see a financial contagion. You take on that debt, as we just discussed, because of confidence in expert planning. But we have the ability now, with our ability to track data, to actually do equity investments instead. I'll give you an example. Currently, you buy a house. You buy it with debt. You put 30% down. You owe the bank 70%. You're the owner of the house. If the value of the house goes down, you end up underwater. The bank doesn't lose because they have the right to the money that you originally borrowed you lose because your house is worth less than what you owe on that house. But if we do ex equity investment, then if the value of the house goes down, you still own 30% and the bank still owes 70. And if the value of the house goes up, you still owe 30% and they still owe 70. Both of you win or both of you lose based on how the market's doing, but nobody is ever underwater. The other aspect of this is that if you lose your job, you still owe that 30%, even if you can't make the mortgage payments. Instead, what happens is, is maybe you find another renter to take your place, or maybe you sell that 30% back to the bank. You don't end up in a situation in which you are underwater because you faced a difficulty. You build up resilience as an individual and the ability to deal with economic shocks. You can do this on a commercial level as well. Businesses can use more equity and less debt. Of course, in an economic crisis, debt is critical for saving lives, but otherwise, we should generally discourage it. And even governments can do this. A government can borrow money 
But instead of borrowing money that's paid back at a certain percentage rate, they can actually sell slices of their GDP to third parties. I'm doing this at home during the day, so you're going to hear my kids. Can't do anything about that. They sell slices of their GDP. And if they sell slices of their GDP, then the borrowers of their money are interested in their success and their growth, not just their survival. It's a wonderful thing that we can accomplish today that we couldn't accomplish in the past because we couldn't handle the data. So what do I want to do? I want to tax debt to reduce its prevalence. Debt serves a purpose, definitely. It's a very valuable thing to have in an economic system, but we shouldn't have as much of it as we do, and we have that because we encourage it. The other thing is medical shocks. Somebody gets sick and they find themselves bankrupt unless they have an employer and this whole complex convoluted system that we see built up in the United States or in Europe, a centralized system that can't deal with medical shocks of, on a societal level. It's too rigid. It's not well designed to actually deal with what people need. You have long waiting lists because central planners are making decisions about what's important and what isn't. Experts are making these decisions. I think we should move on to a new system. I think that the government should pay 100% of the median cost of a treatment if somebody has a common condition, let's say they have diabetes. How much does it cost to treat the diabetes? Work out the median, and then the consumer gets back whatever money they save beyond that median, or they pay whatever they spend in excess of that median. If they pay 110%, if they pay, if they, the treatment they get costs 110% of the median, they pay that 10%. But if it costs 90% of the median, they can get 10% back. They can actually make money by saving money. What this will do is that this will result in universal coverage, but also innovation in cost and quality. So currently, we have innovation in the United States in quality. We're very, very good at delivering better and better outcomes. We pay through the nose for better and better outcomes, because if your insurance will cover it, then you'll spend anything. But we don't have any incentive for us to spend less. But if we can get some money back by virtue of shopping around, then we can actually draw down the price of these services. And for things that are rare and less common or new, like coronavirus, we could pay 100% of the median cost of the supplies and the services. But if the service provider delivers those services or those supplies at a lower cost, again, the patient can get money back. And by virtue of enabling this, you encourage the medical provider not to overcharge for these services or these supplies. The last critical thing is that we have auditing. We have anonymized health and supply records that are provided so auditors who pass background checks can actually look into the records and say, you know what, this diagnosis is fraudulent. So they shouldn't get the payment in that case. Or perhaps the doctors in this rare case are charging us for far too many IVs given who the patient is or, or given anything. There's 10,000 IVs being used and we can audit the system, identify fraud and keep that in check. How do we pay those auditors? We pay them by giving them a percentage of the money that they find has been stolen. And so this is a, me a methodology of making sure that the 100% the median case is actually done well. Now, 100% median, this number is adjusted continually. So we move the number up and down, and it enables us to quickly take advantage of uh, cost savings in the marketplace. How about quick reaction? Well, one thing we've seen in the United States very clearly is that local governments and state governments reacted much faster than the federal government did, and they always will. We always rely on the federal government to come swooping in with FEMA, but FEMA has largely been a failure when it comes to dealing with large-scale disasters. Local services have been much more effective, and we should enable them to be even more effective. They know local conditions. They know what's needed. They know the people. They're able to react much more appropriately. So what we should be doing is empowering those local governments to react. In addition, we should have less central power. 
the central power tends to lock in barriers, tends to lock in bureaucracy, and tends to make solving new problems harder and harder to do. And thirdly, we should have fewer barriers to mass response. So universal health services, for example, something I mentioned, we had a hard time, we have a hard time responding in mass to this virus because not everybody can get diagnosed in the United States or overseas is all centrally managed. So we can't scale up and scale down very quickly because we have a very moribund centrally managed healthcare system in almost every other country. So we need to have systems that enable flexibility, but are also providing universal services to rich and poor alike. Lastly, I talked about faster innovation. I think in the medical field, we can see some obvious ways of doing this. Currently, many, many medications are used off-label. Effectively, all that's tracked is their safety, not their efficacy in treating what they're being used to treat. I think that, that gives us a path forward. The FDA should be seeing and tracking medical safety. They should be overseeing the methodologies by which that safety is, is, is tracked by manufacturers, uh, and they should be ensuring that that data is accurate uh, and published appropriately. And then we should let the market decide on efficacy. Like buying a car, you don't need the government to tell you whether or not it's a good car or a better car than already exists in the marketplace. You choose the car you want that serves your needs as best as you understand them. What the government does track is whether or not that car is sufficiently minimally safe. That becomes your driving force. Same thing with airplanes, same thing with food. Of course, in food, we also have an enormous amount, and in cars, an enormous amount of extra regulation, um, which goes beyond safety. But in, in, in core cases, what we should be tracking is safety, and then we can allow innovation on top of that. And of course, there is a need for extraordinary action. We're not going to eliminate the need for extraordinary action. I called for isolating the elderly, short-term mass isolations, which I still think should be ongoing, much more complete than perhaps we see in the United States. In Israel, we're not allowed to leave our homes unless we have essential jobs. And massive bonuses for tests and treatments. I don't think any of these things should be permanent. We can't predict which, <laughs> I mean, these powers shouldn't be permanent. They are special powers. We can't predict which powers we're going to need in the next black swan event. What we do need to have is the flexibility to react to those events because they enable us to, to deal with unique problems that show up that we've never seen before. A couple of weeks ago, well, actually it was just last week, I, uh, I gave a sermon on my podcast, CandidateEveryone.com. And in that, that podcast, I talk about false gods. We worship our social networks. We worship our experts. We worship our global human community. We worship the power of humanity. And this virus has humbled us. This virus has shown us the limits of our power. But I also described that we can emerge from this renewed if we remember that we actually have infinite potentials. Potential. We can act like God. We can create new realities. We can innovate. We can change the paradigm. But we also have to remember that we are not God. We can't actually control what the future will be. We can react to the future. We can create a new future. We can create new realities, but we can't set what the future is going to be. There's always going to be things that come at us that we can't predict. So we can't rely on perfect planning to deal with our issues. We have to have an innovative, adaptive society that can deal with new things and that encourages us to react as quickly as possible to those new realities. So what's my summary? Let's prepare for the next crisis. How? Let's encourage resilience empower local responses, and do everything we can to enable innovation. Thank you, and have a great week.